I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That is the music of my guest today on the program, Bob Perry. Let me tell you a little bit about Bob Perry. The author Suzanne Trouth once wrote that the story of the founding of a New Jersey town came with some singing, some dancing, and a turntable. Now, I don't know what Bob Perry's house in northern New Jersey was like growing up. There could have been some singing and some dancing, sure. But one thing I'm certain of is there was a turntable. And Perry studied the sounds that spun out of it. From television to Zeppelin to the birds, Perry was paying close attention. In 1983, Perry joined Winter Hours. His melodic, muscular playing was the perfect counterpoint and partner for the band's other guitarist, Michael Carlucci. Meanwhile, from his delivery to his poetic lyrics, singer Joseph Marquez was a cross between Michael Stipe and Jim Morrison. And it didn't take long for Winter Hours to build themselves a rather rabid local following. They put out a few EPs on the Link label, and then in 1989, they signed a three-album deal with Chrysalis Records. Lenny Kay produced their debut for the label, and it spawned some college rock favorites like Roadside Flowers and Carpenter Square. Bewilderingly, they were dropped in 1990, and then they called it a day a year later in 91. Well, after Winter Hours, Perry put out several solo albums, including my personal favorite, Light Fuse Runaway. And he produced albums for other bands, including Birdie. Then he married the singer of Birdie, our good friend and former Aquanetta's drummer, Stephanie Seymour. Perry plays on Stephanie's new album, There Are Birds, and they now hold the distinction as the first couple to ever have their own episodes on our podcast. I can hear them updating their LinkedIn profiles right now. All right, here's my chat with Bob Perry. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I met the Aquanetas one time uh, real early on. The winter, when I was in the band Winter Hours, we were playing a show at the Green Parrot in, uh, in New Jersey. And we got invited to a barbecue after sound check at some record guy's house. And uh, the Aquanetas were playing at the barbecue. And we met them for like a quick minute. And then, you know, uh, we'd seen their name all around because they played kind of the same, you know, circuit that we were playing. But that, that was kind of it. And then, you know, I met her later on. Uh, when she was doing her own uh, band birdie so it's kind of funny right yeah it's like you met your wife before you even knew that that was even going to happen yeah exactly (laughs) really cool um i'm curious to know and by the way i gotta say about winter hours i this is one of those things i realized when i was thinking about you is i not only did i love that band and i played them a lot on my radio show thanks um I, I think about that song Roadside Flowers, and I'm not even joking. I think about it maybe once a day. Like I don't think I, oh, I wow. that song is in my head constantly. <laughs> it's a good one. It, uh, it's a real good one. Um, you know, the lyrics to that that Joe wrote are are so touching. You know, um, really beautiful, beautiful. Uh, you know, 
just just really nice song. Thank you. Yeah, um, he but, he was yeah. he was like one of those like um, I put him up there with those sort of mercurial enigmatic frontmen. He reminds me of like somewhere between like Stipe and and Mark from Miracle Legion. Like he was like a really kind of a transfixing presence. He he really was. Uh, Joe Joe had that thing, you know that that thing that that, that sometimes you know frontmen in the band have and and. Uh, he was just great. It's such a shame that he's, you know, that he's gone. Um, and Michael too. So. Oh yeah. Do you, how do yeah. you feel by the way? Like, do you feel when you think about winter hours, do you think about them as this sort of um, like this kind of like, uh, like not a legacy you have to protect, but I imagine that you're that, well, I guess I'm trying to figure out how do you regard that band? I mean, obviously they're in the past tense, but I mean, how do you think about that as an entity? Well, you know, that that was how I, I learned to play music, really, you know, um, seriously. The, the guys in Winter Hours, we, we were all from the same town. We were all kids that played in different bands growing up. And as we got out of high school and college and things like that, we were sort of the still, still the guys that were playing music, you know, seriously. And we just kind of gravitated together. And, and uh, you know, we put that band together as kids, really, and we learned how to do everything uh, musically in that band. We learned how to make recordings. We learned how to, you know, get ourselves on tour and, and make some money and, and how the music business worked, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, so, so yeah, I guess I am kind of protective of it, but, but it's, it's sort of, you know, like that, that was the launching ground for the whole rest of my, you know, musical career was, you know, and I owe it all really to that band. You guys were signed to Chrysalis, which had the Bible, uh, the Blue Airplanes, I think, and the House Martins. That was primarily, you know, British music. You know, in the late 80s, there was this kind of um, gold rush on American indie bands, bands like O Positive or Poi Dog Pondering or the Rave Ups, and they were all signed um, to major labels, Winter Hours included. But then those labels, you know, they didn't seem to know what to do with all those bands and then suddenly things changed and those bands were dropped, you know, as quickly as they were signed. So uh, what do you remember about the experience with Chrysalis? We, we had gotten signed by the vice president uh, of Jeff Aldridge uh, uh, during the Chrysalis time. And, and there was like a big buzz around, you know, going to do all this great stuff for, for winter hours. And then, like you said, in 91, things changed. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the people at the label had left. No one knew even who we were when we called. And we basically asked them to drop us from the label so that we could, you know, continue to like maybe look for another deal or whatever. But but by that point, the band had kind of run its course. It, it fizzled out and we were, you know, sort of disgruntled with the music business and everything and just kind of went our separate ways. Great band, Opposer, by the way. We we played a lot of shows with those guys up in Boston. Uh, really good friends. And actually, Dave Hurley sings uh, sings the background vocal on Roadside Flowers um, on the recording. So. Well, I didn't know that. That's what a trip. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was. What, I mean, it was a great time, and it was also it ended up being sort of a very frustrating time for a lot of those bands, including yours, because it was sort of like you know to get to the majors, and then you realize like, wow, the majors don't even really know what to do with us. Yeah, it was a hard, like we were really, Winter Hours had a great college radio, you know, uh, we had a, a good management company and a good, uh, you know, great, you know, we would get like CMJ top 10 record and yeah. things like that. And and then when we tried, to, you know, it, it was always our goal to be like, oh, we have to be on a major label. And we, and we, 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 uh, we hassled our manager so many times to get us onto a major label. And we, we picked Chrysalis because they were sort of like an indie, you know, major uh but but then you know it just that was I think the beginning of the changing of the music industry like thing you know nothing good really happened after that. <laughs> no, and I mean Nirvana blew it apart, and then it was sort of like you know I mean even even jangly bands like REM you know made the Monster record. It was like there was a huge change in the air. Um, yeah, yeah, you were either like got to be really huge, or you know you, you kind of stayed bubbling under somewhere, and you know and it became you know harder and harder for musicians to to make a you know to to make a living and, and i really gotta say I, I i kudos to the people that stick it out you know and like yeah like the marshall crenshaws that are still doing music you know at, at that kind of a level and uh, you know it's just uh it's a hard way to it's a hard hard uh hard way to make a living even uh now i think it's even harder yeah i mean 
And I, do you know? Um, I don't want to talk about like how bad music things are, but do you know this? <laughs> did you know uh, Neil Casale at all? Uh, I did. I knew who he was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So like that's like a like in a really really bad story. That guy was a great musician, great singer, you know, and and he you know he was so hard to to get anywhere you know as far as uh you know like a, you know, he had a great career but but still he was you know troubled uh w- with uh with being in the music business and all you know and and uh it's just such a shame it's a shame yeah there's a lot of um a lot of casualties i mean it, it and i think that's a really good example of how it just sort of you know chips away at you and you you know, Neil was a successful guy, but I don't know if that guy had health insurance. I don't know if he could pay his mortgage. You know, I, so I don't even know what successful even means anymore in this industry. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, were all the guys in Winter Hours from Lynnhurst, New Jersey? That's where all the guys in Winter Hours are from, yeah, Lynnhurst, New Jersey. <laughs> That's cool. And so when you um, were coming up, was there a, a, a New Jersey scene that was where there was a confederacy and you felt that there was like this network of bands that were all pals? Well, it kind of ended. We all, yeah, it was, it was Maxwell's in Hoboken, actually. That's where we all sort of, you know, uh, met the guys from the Feelies and, and, you know, met Steve Fallon. There was like Coyote Records happening at the time. And Maxwell's really was the place in, in Hoboken where, where, you know, all the bands that were coming up at the time, you know, you could go there on any given night and see, you know, the Bush Tetras or, you know, I saw R.E.M. there. I saw so many great bands. I saw the replacements there, you know, I saw so many, so many shows at, at, uh, at Maxwell's. So that, yeah. Um, there was also another place in Lynnhurst actually that was kind of like a uh, a dance club, you know, slash new wave club called Aldo's, and then actually Mike Carlucci used to DJ there sometimes, and we we kind of hung out there, but 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 uh, you know Maxwell's really was was the place that that it all kind of happened for us. Were bands like the Smithereens were they were they around at that point? They were around at that point. I, I it's funny because I know Dennis now very well, and we're friends. Uh, Dennis Dyken from from them, but but they were sort of uh, you know another New Jersey band you know that was coming up. I wouldn't, didn't really know them that well at the time. They sort of played at uh, the New Brunswick scene a lot, you know, because they were kind of from that area. There's a place, uh, the Melody Bar in New Brunswick, and this other place called Patrick's was another venue down there um, in Jersey. So so yeah, I knew of those guys at the time, um, seeing them a bunch of times. Um, but we, we didn't really, our paths didn't cross that much, you know. But now, like, I, I know Dennis, because I play uh, in Edward Rogers' band. Uh, sometimes um, I play guitar in that band, and, and Dennis is the drummer, uh, and, and Sal Maida is the bass player for that. So, so it's, a, it's a really good, uh, fun band to be in. You mentioned that you'd gone to college, and so were, when you were thinking in terms of a life, you know, a career, um you you had a backup plan in the sense that you had a college degree or did you or did you just sort of bank on music i i know i never actually finished school I, I sort of ditched it for for jumping in the van with the winter hours guys but <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh no i really didn't have a backup plan and i got kind of lucky because you know uh, when when i uh you know i said i was like a did every job that you could do you know when you're a musician i bartended i did some construction work when we weren't playing you know i did all kinds of things so I never really did have a backup plan, and I think I just probably got lucky because I fell into, you know, a couple of things I do, like IT work now and stuff. Uh, but no, no, I never did. I, I, when I was a kid, when I was nine years old, learning how to play the guitar, the only thing I ever wanted to do was, was be in a band, and I had no other aspirations. Um, how um, <laughs> how were your parents? Were they supportive of your artistic angle? Not at not at first. My dad really was so uh, angry that I, I, you know, was not going to go to college, finish. And uh, until um, until I came home one day with the first Winter Hours record that was actually printed, you know, pressed, and it was, you know, still in the shrink wrap, and I showed it to him, and my name was on it. And then he was like, oh, you really have something to show for this. Then he started showing up at a gig here and there or whatever, and he would buy beers for the guys. But but at first they were not not really supportive of it, you know, as a, as a career. 
And do you think that it had a lot to do with like you know obviously fear, right? They were they were concerned about like what is that going to look like for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all parents are you know want want the best for their kids. I would imagine, and uh, I think yeah, they just thought like any other parent. You know, that's you know that's not a it's not a great way to make a living. So uh, maybe they thought it was a long shot. You know. Right. Right. <laughs> Were you? And it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was gonna say it. Kind, it, kind, I mean, it is. But on the flip side of that, they they knew the personal fulfillment. They knew how much I got out of it. And when they could see that, even at a very, you know, winter hours never made a whole lot of money. We we were able to sustain ourselves for you know maybe ten years or whatever. Uh, but like you said, you know, we weren't gonna have health insurance from playing in a band. You know, we weren't gonna, uh, you know pay our mortgage or we weren't going to be able to buy a house or anything like that. You know, so. Those are things that don't really occur to you until, you know, when you're in your twenties, you're not really thinking about that, but you're kind of bulletproof and you're, you, you don't really think like that. Um, it doesn't dawn on you sometimes until too late where you're like, you know, that you, that there are, you know, adult things you need to tend to. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It, um, you are kind of bulletproof in your twenties. <laughs> well, it sure. It sure feels that way. I think it has to do with the idea that you feel like you have this sort of like infinite number of days ahead of you. And as you get older, those infinite days feel more finite. Yeah. I remember thinking like, oh my God, I'm going to be 38 years old in the year 2000. You know, and I thought that that seemed like so, so far away that I might not even ever get there, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, now we're way past that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm right. I'm right with you. Um, were you, as a, a practitioner of guitar, as a young guy, were you the kind of person that could practice for hours? I mean, was that something you could you had laser like focus that way? I I would play the guitar for hours. I'm I'm sort of a, a self trained musician, but I, I have taken lessons here and there. But but uh, as a at a young age I was like just transfixed with the guitar and and I would drive my parents crazy like just feeding back in my basement for hours or like putting the tremolo on and just I was more into the the guitar and how to make sounds with it than I was into actually practicing scales or or you know knowing like the music theory behind it you know that came later but but yeah I, I could and I still do I could drive Stephanie crazy for hours here just you know <laughs> making a whole lot of noise i was talking to uh ben vaughn a couple of years ago and he was telling me that he ran into marshall crenshaw on the street and he was like oh hey where are you off to and marshall crenshaw was like i'm going to my guitar lesson and <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it was only till later in life that i really started to study guitar you know and, and i'm still you know you, you, it's it's a lifelong uh thing where you could just you know I take lessons every once in a while. I was taking lessons from Mark Bosch for a while. I don't know if you know him. He's the guitarist in the Ian Hunter's rant band. Um, and, and he's like, he's a virtuoso. So every once in a while I would say, Hey Mark, you know, you have an hour. I'll, I want to just come by and have you, you know, show me some stuff on the guitar and teach me some theories that, but it just to get you, your brain thinking, you know, again, in, in a way, you know, so when you're alone and, and doing things or coming up with, you know, parts for a record that you're playing on or something like that, you know, that you can really, you know, dig into something musical. And, and you know, playing with other people that are really great, too, is something that, that drives me. You know, I played I played uh, in a band for a long time with this guy, Ray Nissen, who's on Stephanie's record, and, and he's a phenomenal musician. He's just he's a great arranger. He knows, uh, you know, theory really well. And to play with people like that, you have to be on your toes. So, you, you know, you have to kind of go back and study and then, it's doing stuff like that that keeps you, keeps you, uh, you know, going with it. Right. So if you took a lesson, you would be very specific about what you wanted to do. Oh yeah, like I play. I, I was uh, played on a friend of mine's record, the the other ninety nine, a while back. Um, this guy Jeff Epstein, and and, uh, and coming up with the parts for the records, I said, you know, I'm going to go to to Mark, and I'm going to, you know, show him what I'm playing, you know, and the parts I'm coming up with with this record, and see, you know just have him give me some tips and pointers and see like what he would do. And, and, and my, you know, is this good basically is what I was looking for. So, so yeah, I would, and I actually took a video camera with me and videotaped the lesson so that I would remember, you know, <laughs> the whole thing. So um, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, uh, it, you got to keep studying. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and how are you compositionally compared to, um, you know, the days and winter hours? Like, do you think, as a player, like what about you has changed? 
I think I'm more confident uh, now. You know, back in the days of winter hours, uh, like we were still learning, and and even in that band, Mike Carlucci was such a great guitar player. Yeah. And actually, he was my teacher at one point in in um, in, in in high school. You know, since we all grew up together before we were in the band together, Michael was like the guy who gave you know lessons to kids all around the neighborhood. So I had taken some lessons from Mike and, and, you know, playing in that band really, you know, play with people that are really good. Yeah. You know, I always like to be in a band where I'm not the best guy. I want to be the worst guy in the band. Cause that way, you know, I can always learn something from, from other people. And how do you challenge yourself when, when no one's around? In other words, when, if you're just sort of um, practicing on your own, how, how do you sort of push yourself when it's just you? Uh, well, you know, there's 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 guitar players, you know, that that you really love and try to you know try to be half as good as or anything like that. So sometimes I I I pick up I keep I always go back to this there's this record uh, the Legends of Country Guitar, and it's it's you know to try and just learn some of those licks or riffs or get like ten percent of what those guys you know could do. Uh, even though it's like all this country picking kind of stuff, you can you can pick up so much stuff from that and, and use it in, in in any you know in any other style of music you want. So so I listen to other guitarists and I I try to learn what they do and try to pick up some tips from them you know uh, just to try to get a style you know. Are there some players that you still listen to where you go that guy is from outer space? I can't figure out what that guy's doing. Jeff Beck. There... Jeff Beck. Ah. Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck. Really? He, he is yeah, he's such an innovator on guitar and, and you know, the stuff that he does is, is amazing. We saw, uh, we went to see Brian Wilson a while back. It was a Jeff Beck tour with and Brian Wilson and during the uh, Brian Wilson portion of the show, they had Jeff Beck come out and play on guitar all of the lead vocal lines with the, with the Beach Boys guys, you know, um, and the Wonderman's guys that were in the band and Brian Wilson's band at the time singing all the background harmonies. So they would do, they did all these beautiful Beach Boy songs with Jeff Beck playing the lead vocal line on guitar. And it was just, it was like the hair on my arms are standing up. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, just you describing that just sounds like about the coolest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds yeah. so great. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was really, it was really special. Um, Actually, we're going to see Brian Wilson and the Zombies in a couple of weeks, so uh, hopefully. That oh, that's cool. I just I just found Winter Hours doing a cover of of uh, Time of the Season. I didn't even know you guys did that. Well, early on we did that. Yeah, yeah. That's there's a cover of that somewhere online. Yeah. Um. They, I huh. think I believe that Michael may have had a SoundCloud page, and he had these obscure odds and ends, and I was like, I gotta listen to this, and it's really cool. Like you guys could do like a garagey version of it. Yeah, yeah. I think we only played that out a few times, so it must be from this uh, show in, in at the Peanut Gallery in Hilton. Uh, that's got to be where that's from. That's that's amazing. That's probably in 1985 or so. Yeah, it's. I think you're right about that. I, in terms of where it was, I remember that. I'll send you the link. I'll send you the link to your band's music. Great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had some really cool gems up there, and they're they're still there. Um, and there's it's. I mean, it's a treasure trove of like sort of B sides and um, live stuff. That's it's well, really great. Michael was such a collector, not only of our stuff but of everything. I mean, Mike, Mike. Uh, all of the, the like, you know, I was watching the that Martin Scorsese, uh, Bob Dylan thing recently that's on Netflix, and there's a lot yeah. of that uh, footage, you know, all that old footage that's, you know, unreleased, and I'm using air quotes. But Mike had that stuff on VHS tape. You know, I'd seen a lot of this footage already. You know, he was such a collector of bootlegs and, and videos, and, and, you know, I don't know where all that stuff ended up, but but uh, he um, he definitely – was a great collector and of things. Okay, what about a guy like Mark Knopfler? I, I would imagine he seems like a guy that would be in your wheelhouse. Mark Knopfler's a great guitar player. Um, as a matter of fact, I bought a Tone King Imperial amp because Mark Knopfler uses them. But uh, um, you know, Dire Straits is, was a, a, a you know great band. Uh, I, I hold him up there with a lot of guys. He's not, it's not like my kind of go-to music, really. But right. um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, he's an amazing guitarist. Yeah. And you also remind me a little bit of Peter Buck. 
that's that's interesting. Well, you know, we when Winter Hour started put our stuff together and we kind of thought about the direction we were going and, you know, REM was sort of coming up around the same time and we got a lot of comparisons to REM and, and we kind of shunned it, you know, the comparisons at the time, but, but really that was, you know, that was definitely a huge influence on us, even down to like, Hey, we should get a lot of vintage clothing and wear it on stage. Cause that looks <laughs> cool. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you, I mean, obviously you guys both love the birds I and mean, there was a real sixties thing going on. Right. Oh yeah. The birds, you know, Neil Young, Dylan stuff, you know, the, the, all of that stuff, but, you know, Buffalo Springfield. Um, yep. Yeah. I mean, we, we even, we probably covered a bird's tune or two in our, in our day. <laughs> yeah. And the Hollies, I think you, don't you guys do a cover of bus stop? I think that, that made, we did, fun. we did do a cover of bus stop, man. That's around somewhere for sure that I know of. Um, actually Steph and I did a, a, a version of that one time at a, uh, a Pico's on show in New York, um, where they were doing, uh, I don't know if it was a Holly's tribute or like a summertime thing or whatever, but, but we sort of revived the, uh, winter hours version. of that. For, for, yeah. I, I like yeah. the fact that you, that you married a musician. I mean, and did, did that, is that something that for you, like that just made perfect sense, right? Like that, and there's a sort of like, there's a harmony in that kind of union. Well, yeah. I mean, we understood each other. We all, you know, Steph, Steph had toured. I had toured. We, we, we certainly, you know, came up uh, at a young age, loving music and, and wanting to do that. So, so sure. It was kind of a natural progression, you know, um, I sort of fell in love with her when we were recording uh, the birdie quadra, uh, uh, the birdie record. Um, and, and like, I just would listen to her voice, you know, over and over as we were doing vocals. <laughs> She got yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a brilliant record, and she has an absolutely amazing voice. And I think on her new record, you really get a chance to see what she can do with it. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Her new record, uh, we're very proud of that. Very proud of her record. I, I'm kind of curious. You know, is I feel like artists, you know, they understand each other, like you were saying, and so it makes sense that artists would be together. But what was it like when she stepped away from music? Um, because you kept going, obviously you didn't stop. What what was that like when she sort of? Because she wasn't really doing music at all. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it, it was interesting. You know, when when we first got married, you know, I sort of maybe I had like a fantasy in my head that it was going to be like, oh, we're going to sit around the house and sing all day, and we're always going to make records <laughs> and everything. <laughs> but you know, uh, uh, you know, it, it was it was fine, uh, you know, and and actually I kind of got into the bird watching, you know, with her. Uh, I sort of bought a camera and kind of became the, uh, the documentarian of uh, of our bird watching trips, and you know, so but, you know, marriage is uh, it's a wonderful thing, and and it has its you know sways and ebbs and flows, and you, you have to just go with it. And but I was really happy when she you know decided to you know start getting back into music and and wanted to to uh to record because you know it kind of fell in line with our we were redesigning our basement to be a, a you know a music studio and a music place to record and play music and then uh she kind of had this idea to you know came to me one day with a notebook and said hey i think i got like 12 songs here and i was like what <laughs> <laughs> um and she wanted to make a record so i said well you know we're just so happens we're building a studio in the basement and we can probably record it here uh, and so we just, we stopped, you know, we stopped a little bit of the construction and it was ready enough to start recording and we made the record. Yeah. Now I'm trying to finish the control room. It's like the darkness has been here for more than days. We watch the evening's armies leave our shores in every age to stain eternal bronze. With the mortals die while every mother's crying Wait till the morning when a wheel of fire will cross the sky A harbor dawn can't be signaled by a single seagull's cry choice we've made we weave our tapestries while at our feet they're laid some hopes are trampled while others made 
I got the light fuse record i didn't even know the winter hours connection it was a it was for whatever reason i didn't make that connection until uh months later but i love that record i i told stephanie i think that's that's a classic a modern classic i love that album oh thank you thank you so much um that that sort of a lot of the songs on that record were, were songs that i played uh in a band so post winter hours I, I kind of uh, didn't do music for a while, maybe for a couple of years. And then I started writing songs again. And I got together with uh, the guys that are actually uh, on my second record. But we were in a band called Tabula Rasa for a long time. And, and a lot of those songs were written during that period and actually played some of them, you know, with, with those guys. Um, uh, Chris Flynn, Alan Katz, uh, Sean Seymour, they're, they're all on my second record, American Standardsville. But but we we did Tabula Rasa for a while and then sort of parted ways. Uh, and they, <laughs> interestingly enough, those guys were the band for Birdie when when we sort of uh, when the Crop Duster Records thing started happening again. So so you know we came full circle you know back back with my original band that was now Stephanie's band and. <laughs> and uh, and that's it. So so yeah the the that record. Um, uh, was the you know one of the first crop duster really releases? But there was a time period, Bob, where you know there was a there was sort of a um, like this sort of um, chasm between like ninety three and ninety nine or so, where before the internet really kicked in, where you would go like, whatever happened to the Gear Daddies? Where are Seven yeah. Simon? All these bands that I that I loved and I had no way of finding out because once I left college radio, I wasn't getting CMJ anymore and I wasn't, you know, and so there's this period of time, almost 10 years where you lost track of people. And so when you talk about Tabula Russell, like I didn't even know that that you were in that band. Yeah, there, there was, was a weird time there. And it was funny, too, because, you know, the Internet was, at that point was kind of like bulletin boards and, and, you know, these these, you know, like weird chat room things and, and stuff like that right. and then you know during that time there were so many bands that were awkwardly announcing their website you know when uh on on stage and they'd be like go to you know http www you know, like, right and, and, and you know uh before that we we didn't know you know we used we were used to you know handwriting letters and sending to you know to people that were xeroxing fanzines in their basement and stuff you know this is, <laughs> this is a completely different way of of uh trying to find out you know what's out there you know it used to just be you know you went to a club you met people and by word of mouth you heard about these things and somebody you know would, would hit you to like you know a fanzine or something else and and, and you would find out about you know oh positive or the con l's or like you know all these bands, you know, that are, you know, that are playing yeah. indie circuits, you know. Yeah, but we, I mean, the thing was, we, but we did find out, right? Like, even, even without the internet, there was this network, you know, in the 80s where, you know, you would see these people at shows, like shows were always, um, you know, here in Berkeley, there was this little place called the Berkeley Square. I don't know if you guys ever played it. Um, no, you know, no. This tiny place, but you know what, Bob, it was always filled. I mean, like Jonathan Richmond would come and it was always you know, sold out. And yeah. you know, there, there was a network of people who, even without the internet, they were able to communicate and find each other. And um, that was, that was a pretty cool time. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was a great time. It was a great time for music. It was even, you know, it's a great time uh, to be in a band, you know, cause, cause like you said, you know, it was a network of people. And even when winter hours would play and we'd go to these little towns and play the club that was, was filled with like 50 people or whatever. There was always someone 
there that would like, you know, hey, you know, come back and sleep, you know, sleep on our floor if you need to. And, or, you know, like, we'll, we're going to introduce you to these other people. You know, that's how we, we played in Boston and we, we, we learned about the O positive guys. Cause you know, Heidi uh, invited us to her house and we slept on their floor and, you know, we hung out and talked all night, you know, about, about music and stuff but, you know, that didn't seem to happen like that later, later on. Maybe it was because we got a little older and we were, you know, it, it just times had changed, but, but uh, yeah, definitely long for those days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting how like, like for me from Berkeley, you know, w- would be totally rabid for a band like the Neats from, you know, Minnesota. It's like they're, these bands <laughs> were finding people and, and it was such a cool thing. And then the internet comes around and uh, when Crop Duster got really got going by then, you know, obviously things were in full swing. But what I liked about Crop Duster is it really did feel like a bona fide collective. Well, it was, there were definitely, it, it was a, it was a, it was a cooperative, you know, artist owned label, you know, that, that it, at that time. And the reason we got together was we, we had, you know, all these bands in New York and, and Jersey, we were going to see each other shows. And it was around the time where like, you felt like, uh, how if I make this demo, like what record label am I going to shop this to? They're, they just don't exist. We're not going to get a good deal. And, you know, that it was around the time when, when the majors were starting to gobble up all the other uh, labels. And we had heard so many stories about people that had made a record and, and it didn't come out because, you know, the, the, uh, the company got bought by EMI or something. And now you don't know who you know, owns your label and you're either trying to, uh, your record and you're either trying to, fight them to get it back so you can own it and do something with it and we and all of us were like what is the point of going to a record label with a demo to get a shitty deal sorry if i'm not allowed to say that on your on your podcast you're totally uh, allowed but, to. but that <laughs> <laughs> but that's what crop duster was all about it was like hey let's just do this ourselves we can you know a, a, a single band can't hire a publicist because we can't afford it but if we all, you know, pool our money together and, and you know, uh, and hire a publicist and, and, you know, you're making a record, then you're going to be done in, in, you know, six weeks. And that's when we'll release the next one. Then that's what it was all about. It was all about helping each other. We could go to clubs and say, hey, we're going to put together a crop duster night for you. And they're like, what's a crop duster night? And we're like, well, we got five bands. You know, they're all going to share the equipment. It's going to be easy to, to change the sets and we're going to pack your place guaranteed, you know, and, and that's what happened. And so that's, why um that's why we did it it was successful at the time it was hard for us to to do it anywhere else outside of the tri-state area because you know it was just people were working and things like that but but we uh you know we we did as much as we could um and and you know it was it was a fun time did it feel also like kind of liberating like okay like we can do this ourselves i don't have to deal with all the other stuff that i've had to deal with in the past yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. It was it was very liberating. And, and, you know, if there was something we wanted to do, we would have these meetings, you know, once a month and we'd say, what do you guys think? You know, should we, you know, should we bring in a lawyer and try and, you know, do do something, you know, or whatever, you know, uh, whatever the thing was that we wanted to do. We had, a you know, a bunch of people we tried to bring in other groups into the fold, you know, we brought on Patty Rothberg and the green rooftops and, and, and it sort of wasn't the chemistry wasn't like the original six or seven bands that started it, but we tried to kind of hand it off, you know, to other, to other bands and and get it going. Was there ever a moment though, where you were like a little bit of a phantom limb where you thought, geez, this is actually a lot. It turns out this is actually a lot of work. It'd be nice if somebody was here to do X or did you feel it was all handleable? Well, I mean, it was, there were times I'm sure like, and that may have been, you know, uh, what, what sort of, you know, uh, in the end, the ultimate demise of crop duster was because there were a lot of things to do, but, but you know, we, we were, uh, we were not a traditional label. We weren't like, you know, seeking talent and people weren't coming us, you know, coming to us to say, you know, help me record a record or anything. It, it was, you know, so there were things well, one of the things that we couldn't do, uh, you know, like I said, was publicity. So hiring a publicist was definitely uh, a move, you know, uh, that we made that, that really uh, that really helped. But that, that being able to sustain that, you know, on a on a on a basis where where you know, keep going, uh, it just was costly. So you know, that eventually that had to to end as well. So yeah, you know. Um, we didn't want to be a label. We just wanted to be, 
uh, a group of people helping each other out. And we sustained it for as long as we could. And in terms of the way that you are making music now, do you feel a kind of, um, I mean, I always, I always wonder this about musicians and, and I'm, I'm probably selfishly asking it for myself as a writer, but do you feel that you're more efficient? Because, you know, like when I write, I know when an idea is something I shouldn't be chasing down. Whereas when I was 20, I would have chased it into a corner that would have basically cornered me. Um, but when you, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So when you compose now, are, do you find that you are able to discern like, oh, this is something I, I should follow this? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that comes with experience for sure. Like, you know, uh, you know, I have, I have tons of material that I never finish, right? I have songs that I'll just, you know, half a song and record it, even even record it semi-professionally with have folks over and and put stuff down, and then like oh, I'll finish the lyrics later. Uh, but yeah, some of them you're just like I can't keep beating this dead horse. You know, the the best ones always come to you uh, in in a flash. You know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you have an idea and you jot most of it down and, and then it's like, oh yeah, I, I understand. I know what, you know, I know where this is going. It's, 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 it's almost like I've got my antenna up and, and I'm just receiving this information, you know, as a gift from somewhere. Right. Uh, so those are the ones that you sort of, you know, follow uh, all the way through. No problem. But, but yeah, as you get older and, and you go been playing music for a long time, you know, that there's some that you're just going to have to let go. And and I think all the labor you put in on those are maybe, uh, maybe that's uh, the payoff when you get like the one, you know, that just comes to you, you know, in a flash. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, and I feel like, you know, writing wise, I feel like when you, when I sort of thread the needle the way I really wanted to thread it, I'm so afraid afterwards. I'm like, I hope that wasn't it. I hope that wasn't the last yeah. one I got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, know, you got to keep keep your antenna up, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep your antenna up, and I think it, it you know, the the idea that that's what, maybe that's what I was asking you earlier is like when you're bird watching, when you're when you're with Steph and you're out there, maybe the antenna is up in a totally different way, and maybe maybe that yeah. sort of organically shows up in the work later. I, I think you're right. I think you know, and it may not only be bird watching, but in, but in many things that you do, you know, you always kind of have to just be, uh, you know, uh, have it, having the, uh, the ability to, to be open enough to accept the, those, you know, things to stream into your, you know, subconscious and, and, you know, fill you up. I want to talk to you about, um, friendship in this business, because it seems to me, um, like you're a solid guy and you've got, you've got the same guys around you that you've had for years. And I know this business can be tough um and art can be competitive and it can be hard and um how you i mean you must be someone who's literally had the same musical friends for a long time what do you think the secret is to that um well i, I don't know um but i think again i think you really just need to be open you know like for me it's kind of like this if you get into uh, you know a room with five guys and you start playing and you you immediately know in 30 seconds if it's working or not, right? Like a, we, we you know if you are auditioning a drummer or something like that and and a guy comes in and he's not going to fit, you know it. You know within 30 seconds. You might go through the half hour or whatever of a of playing, but you know you're not going to call that guy back or that's it's not the right thing. Well, when you get the right people together and you just start playing something and it gels and you just you could feel it right away i don't know, even know how to explain it you just know that this is the right thing and when you find those people you don't let them go in your life <laughs> right and, and that's you know that's been that's happened to me uh and many times it's happened you know in winter hours it's happened over and over again it's happened with the guys i played with uh you know uh, in tabula rasa and 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 part of that, that really all of those people sort of became the big crop duster family, um, you know, and it's happened with the guys that played on Steph's record, uh, Ray Nissen, I've known and played in many different things with him for years. Um, you know, it's just a natural thing. I can sit down with Ray at any time and we we're, we're just in sync. We know, you know, instinctively what, uh, what to do. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing when you get it and when you get it, you can't let it go. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it's funny. As you were saying that, I was thinking, I don't know why, but I was thinking about Different and Tilbrook from Squeeze. Like, those two guys are so clearly meant to play music together. Like, they should, they right? Like, they should never uh, lose each other's company. Yeah, right. I mean, when they're writing, they're, they're probably finishing each other's sentences and, and just knowing, you know, what works and what doesn't, you know? And, and then, uh, yeah, uh, you know, Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, Strummer and Jones, I mean, it goes on, yeah. but you're, I love what you said about the idea that like, when you have that, you don't, you know, you don't let that go. Cause that's a gift. It, it actually, it, 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 it's most certainly is. And you know it, you know it right away. Like, you know, you can tell immediately when you're playing with someone that, that you don't even have to say anything. You just like, you know, you look over and you're like, yeah, this, this is happening. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> we are in the pocket. Yeah. Right. Right. And, it, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm 49. I'm divorced. And I'm dating now. And I find that when I am when I sit down with somebody who's a who I'm going on a date with, I know within the first 30 seconds, too. And it and it, we're like, this isn't worth pursuing. And it has nothing to do with anything other than a feel. And so, you know, when you when you are playing music with somebody and you feel that lock in, it's this beautiful thing. But when you when it's not locking in, it's not as though the people can't play. It's just that they don't play right. It doesn't feel right with you. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. You know, uh, I've played with many, you know, many, many great musicians and, and, and other things that just it's not it's not for either it doesn't fit the project right or just it just doesn't feel right you know so yeah and like i you know and and you know when to uh when to uh call it off or when to you know keep pursuing it where are you with lyrics bob like are you do you find that those are coming easier now than they ever have do you find that um those always came easy like where are you in terms of that I uh, I have a love hate relationship with with writing lyrics. Uh, <laughs> it comes and goes. <laughs> um, I, I throw more things in the garbage uh, than I should, maybe. But um, you know, I, I'm I'm not you know I don't know I'm not a storyteller per se. But I, I like to think that if I'm gonna write something and I'm gonna have to sing it and I'm gonna sing it in front of people, that I, I at least want to believe in it. Uh, so so I go through phases uh, and I guess you know just like any any other writer uh, you know, right now I'm sort of in a, a non lyric writing uh maybe it's a block or maybe I just don't want to you know force it or whatever but but like I'll keep my antenna up and and if it uh when I feel it I'll 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 go for it. I know a lot of guys that that are very prolific that say you know uh, you have to sit down and set a time and do you know get up at 5 a.m. And, and write for two hours, no matter what what it is, just write it down. Uh, I, I'm not disciplined enough in that way, so maybe that's part of, of maybe that's part of why I'm, I'm going through a block. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, usually it's music first for me. Um, in the rare instance uh, where I'll get uh, an idea lyrically, you know, it usually comes all at once. Uh, so those are the, you know, I've, I've written some songs where everything just sort of flows out and, and that's it. It's like, now I'm going to figure out how the music goes, or maybe it's all in my head at once. But, but, uh, so, you know, it, it differs, but, but, um, lyrically it's, it's always been, a uh, more of a, uh, I want to say challenge, but, but, but the music part is, is easier for me. Are you particularly hard on yourself? Probably. Probably. That silence says it all, Bob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, in in the way that, like, you would say to yourself, because I can say to you right now, like, I'm working on a new poem, and, and I don't know exactly what – so it's not as though the poem isn't isn't saying what I want to say, but it doesn't feel like it's doing what I want to do. Um, and – so I, so I don't have like a preconceived notion. All I know is that it's not working. And I know also when it is. But when you write a song, are, are you thinking like I'm telling a story or I'm exploring a theme and that's my dissatisfaction that the story isn't being told correctly or the theme isn't being explored thoroughly? Like where does the dissatisfaction come from? Uh, just not being able to follow through or find it. Like, like if, if you're, uh, I wrote this song um, and it was based on a partially, well, on a true story. And, it, and it, it's, it's based on a, a true story of a friend of ours that, that got mixed up in some, some weird, uh, you know, 
drug stuff and, and, and was at the wrong place at the wrong time, ended up having to go to jail. Uh, and in jail, uh, he didn't have his diabetic medicine given to him correctly, and he died in jail because of it. And so that was a very personal story for me. And, and I wrote most of the song. And then there's a part at the end uh, where I where it's like, uh, you know, at, at the end of the, the, the song, it kind of goes into a different, you know, uh, mood. And it's it's going to be from the family's perspective. And I just can't get it right. You know, so I leave that one and I go back to it all the time. And I'm like, you know, I just I just can't get this this part right. And someday, you know, maybe someday it'll come to me, but I'm not going to beat that one to a dead horse, you know. Uh, so that's that's where, like, the frustration lies for me. We're trying to say something in the right way, and it just doesn't come out right. And then you, you look at other writers that can do it so easily and say things so eloquently, and, and it's like, hmm, am I ever going to be that good, you know? <laughs> right, right. And I also wonder sometimes if, you know, the songs that are – are I don't want to say easier because I don't think that's the right word, but where you're not telling a story, um, where it's more of like abstract, like it's more of like here's a series of feelings. Um, you know, I was last night I was with a friend of mine and we were we were listening to Paul Simon songs, and we were sort of marveling at these weird lyrical turns that he takes. I, I always knew he was a genius, but I don't think I realized just how much of a genius he really is as a writer. Um, yeah. He takes these left turns where you're like, that's not really part of the story you were just telling. That's a totally different thing. Um, and he can sort of like take these narratives and blend them and they work, but there's like a couple different threads. So I wonder, like, is it easier to write a song that's not telling a, a specific story, but more as like th a thematic exploration with no beginning or end? I mean, imagine it probably is easier that way, um, you know, little vignettes of, of things or, or just sort of, you know, uh, it's funny that you say that. Cause I, I look back sometimes on things that I have written and I'm like, I have no idea what I even meant at the time. You know, like, I, I don't know what, where like, I, I kind of got the vibe of this, but you're like, you know, I, you know, I must have been thinking about, this, you know, to actually write this down. I must have had a, a purpose, you know, I must have had a, 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 something I was following here. And then you just, I just don't know, like, what the hell was that about? You know, so <laughs> I, I guess it's not, it's, you know, songwriting is, is hard work, um, except for those ones, those gifts. Like that's, and, and like I said before, I think if you put in all the work, you know, for 90% of the stuff you have to labor over and, and get down, you get that one or two every once in a while, it just comes to you and you don't know where it comes from. And it's just a, it's just a gift. Who wrote the lyrics in Winter Hours? What did you do any of those? Oh, no, no, it was always Joe, always Joe, always Joe. Um, yeah, Joe was a uh, was a. We didn't need to have anybody else writing lyrics with with a guy like that in the band. <laughs> he, no, he was uh, he was the voice of Winter Hours. Yeah. He was sort of like he he was Stipian in the sense that he he was like an impressionist. You know, there was there was a real impressionistic feel to his lyrics. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can agree with that. Um, Joe, you know, was was very well read. He, 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 you know, and you can if you, you know, read like a song like Roadside Flowers, you know, you you can tell like that he studied writing. You know, um, he was a literature major and he, he was you know a four zero grade uh, average in college. You know, and he he was he was just you know someone that loved loved writing and and and. and I mean, it's what he did, you know, that that's he he, he was more of a writer than than a, a musician at first. So mm -hmm. like at first we he would, you know, we as a band, we would sort of, you know, kind of gel together and we'd make some sounds and put something together that was like an arrangement of a song. And then Joe would put the lyrics on top of that. But as we, you know, as we grew as a band and as we did more stuff and Joe became a better guitar player and a better, you know, understanding of, of, of music writing and stuff, he started to come in with songs like Fully Realized. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, that was, uh, that was a gift too. Did you learn uh, anything from him in terms of writing? Oh yeah, a lot. I learned, I learned how, you know, I really learned, you know, how uh, like a song gets put together, you know, at first. Uh, you know, I was a guitar player and I was a guitar player in a band. Right. And then we, we, uh, you know, we started to learn how to, you know, push and shove and kind of get these things going and make mistakes and fall over. But, but yeah, I, I learned from his discipline of like how, 
you know, like Joe studied poetry and stuff, and he would talk about things like iambic pentameter and all this stuff that I had no idea what that was. Uh, and uh, yeah, I did. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about, you know, you know, just literature, what to read, things to, you know, how how life was in, in general, you know. Yeah, he was he was a remarkable, uh, remarkable lyricist. I, I I don't think I even realized, you know, I was 19 when I got into you guys, and I. You know, going back and listening to it in the last couple of weeks because I hadn't heard it in a while, um, but just realizing the just how precise he was poetically is is kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah, the guy was guy was amazing. Yeah, very very special talent. Um, when the when the Winter Hours tribute thing happened, were you? I mean, you must have been incredibly moved by by that whole project. Uh, the the uh, the record where well, that Mike had worked with a bunch of people on to do do um, cover versions of our songs yeah like Matthew Cause did did a version yeah. of uh, One Small Achievement yeah. yeah yeah it was it was it was really sweet and really nice you know uh, um, there wasn't too many like uh, you know I think Mike always had a, a, a grand idea of putting together like a great big show where you know all these people would show up and we we do it kind of thing like that but but I don't, I don't know that that really happened as much as he probably would have wanted it to but but yeah and then even later like you know like after Mike passed we did some shows where where I put together a band to to do the songs of winter hours and and having to go uh learn those songs from a different perspective because I was going to sing them was was really an interesting you know look back at 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 that band and and just kind of that was really personal to me uh to actually sit down and go okay I'm going to learn how to sing you know uh, uh, the songs, you know, that I was just the side guy on was, was really, uh, interesting. And it really made me take a look at how, how good the band was, you know, not my portion of it, but just like how good all the other players in the band were, you know, and how, what a good writer and what good songs they were. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautifully said. Um, for you, Bob, like what does, what does the future look like in terms of creatively, where are you headed What's the new project? What are your What are your plans? I sound like your dad. What What are you? <laughs> are you going back to college, son? <laughs> you never got that degree. <laughs> Didn't mean to sound so parental. Uh, I don't know. Steph keeps saying, "No, now it's your turn to make a record." Uh, so, <laughs> so um, you know, I I uh, I I like being a guitar guy. I like I said, I play with Edward Rogers. Uh, and we've recorded some uh, some things for his solo record, Steph and I, um, that, that's coming out probably early next year. Uh, and we'll probably do some shows with him. Um, you know, Ed always uh, pushes me to, to, to uh, write with him. And, but Ed moves so fast uh, for me that, that uh, by the time I work on something, he's really got 30 more songs that he's been working on with somebody else. So. So uh, I'm going to keep my antenna up, uh, Alex, and I'm going to uh, keep playing music, and, and maybe I'll flesh out the rest of these songs. And, and uh, if Steph pushes me hard enough, we'll, we'll make a record uh, in the basement, and it'll be a Bob Perry record, you know, for you know the next decade. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um, and do you feel as creatively as alive as ever? I mean, do you feel as as you know the antenna's up and you're and you're open? Do you feel that way? creatively i i do i feel less uh i feel less uh concerned about it and more uh open to just letting it happen than i have in the past i'm not i, I don't beat myself up uh as much as i used to about things and, and i'm not that uh um you know I, I guess i'm just ready for it when, when it happens i'm not um you know, when you're younger and you're going through this stuff, you're always like really worried about everything and really worried like, oh, how am I going to get this done? And are we going to, you know, get that gig or we're going to, you know, get that deal or whatever. I don't care about it in that way anymore. I care about it just for the joy of making music. And, um, you know, I have a lot of great uh, friends uh, around that, that I work with. There's a guy, Ed Seifert, who, um, who is a great musician, great songwriter. He's written like 30 songs in the last year and he posts them up on, on uh, Facebook. And, and I said, why don't you get over here and we'll record, you know, one of your newest songs uh, and, and see where that goes. So we're going to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I play music cause I love it and it's, it's going to be something that I'll always do, 
I don't know that I'm always, you know, going to pursue it as a as aggressively, you know, this year as I will next year or whatever. It's just it's just uh, it's not going to go away. So that's cool. And so we can officially call this episode. Bob Perry has stopped worrying. <laughs> you can. You can. <laughs> well, I'm very excited about the next Bob Perry record. And, you know, you're very lucky because, you know, you've got a great collaborator right there in the house. Yep. Yep. And after I mow the lawn, I think maybe we might talk about uh, a couple of songs. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, I, I really appreciate your time, man. Well, thank you, Alex. This has been uh, a pleasure, my pleasure. So uh, thanks a lot. Great talk with Bob Perry. Uh, lovely guy. Uh, Zeke from New Jersey just wrote in to remind me that Bob was also in the band Tabula Rasa, and he produced records by Green Rooftops and Souls Release. Zeke, you are indeed very correct. Uh, you are uh, very up on uh, Bob Perry's career. I also forgot to mention that Bob plays with Other 99 and Edward Rogers. If you want to check out Bob's music, go to Bandcamp, bobperry.bandcamp.com slash releases, and check out his album, American Standardsville. It's fantastic. Go to my website, alexgreenonline.com, to find out what's going on with me. A lot of news is going to be happening uh, in the Alex Green department. I'll spare you now, uh, but get ready. Lots of exciting things coming up. Uh, I can't talk about them now, but it's fun to say that I have something that I can't talk about yet. I've always wanted to say that. I've always wanted to say there's a thing I can't tell you, uh, and I'm excited that I have that thing uh, that I can't tell you. I'll walk around being that guy. I know it's annoying, but believe me, as soon as I can tell you, and it's very soon, I'll be telling you nonstop. And you'll wish uh, it was the old days where I had no news. Uh, all right, follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor. Follow me on Instagram, please. I'd love to see you there, at Ember's Podcast, or email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Please go to the one that makes you feel the most comfortable. Subscribe, leave a rating, tell all your friends. We would appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for listening. Let's close the show off with another song from Bob Perry's American Standardsville album, This is California. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. When you get back from California Lay your God!